Hey, Kelsey. Hey, Brooke. Want to tell everyone what's happening in today's episode? This episode discusses the resistance to women's themes in history classes, and we're going to do an overview on birth. Oh, all right. Let's get into this. <laughs> Hello, and welcome to Remedial Her Story, the other 50% the podcast that explores what happened to the women in history class. Now, here's your host, Kelsey Brooke Eckert, and her partner in crime, Brooke Neva Sullivan. All right, episode five, His Sphere and Her Sphere. There's a great quote that I'd like to start with. Myra Pollock Sadker once said, each time a girl opens a book and finds a womanless history, she learns she is worth less. As history teachers, the reality is, is we can plug and play with women all we want, but at some point, we are going to have to fundamentally change right. what we're doing. And then we're going to have to change the unit structures, and we're going to have to teach less about war and politics and more I'm sorry, about... what? I know. <laughs> no, we have to talk about every war that's ever happened to any human in the United <laughs> States, because those are the most important things. Right, and... Um, and unfortunately, no, that's not true. <laughs> and so we're going to need to teach less about that and more about the domestic sphere in order to get women's voices in. And people talk, like have pushed back against this idea with me, and they're like, well, no, like women's worlds are important, but that's not what history is yeah, like for. Yeah, you can't sub out X for this. Right. And <laughs> you can't sub out X for Y. <laughs> and so I, I guess my... My question then is, if women are equal, and you're saying that their work is equal, yeah. then we should value and learn about that work equally. What? <laughs> In history class. I love where you're planting this flag right now. Uh, okay, let's do it. So... Um, we're going to have to deviate from political and military history, and we're going to have to enter into the domestic sphere. And so history class is going to have to include topics like childbearing, child rearing, menstruation, housekeeping. I feel like so many people just turned off. Stay with us here. We're going to Menstruation. Get to <laughs> um, cooking, beauty, and all the things that are traditionally feminine topics. Yeah. So... Um, in our job, uh, as history teachers, we're not supposed to teach human anatomy. And I think you could probably hear some of those terms. Like, we're not the doctors. I'm not trained in... Sure, but the human body, the human itself, is very pertinent to how we come to show up in the world. We have to talk about the women's experience. And unfortunately, for most of history, the woman's experience is bound by their body and the things that their body experiences. Well, it was one of their major sources of power. Yeah. And so if we don't speak to it, then we're not recognizing the only form of currency and power that was available to that that type of person in that time period. Yeah. That's a real I like the use of the word currency there. That's awesome. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> That's I come for, the alliteration. There's also a lot of richness to the history of all of those different things. Different cultural practices at different points in time have changed the way that each one of those things has, um, has manifested for women in their lives. 
Um, so, and I think this is hard and it's hard for me. And I have to be real honest about that because like here I am promoting it. But at the same time, like I got into history because I was interested in politics. I was interested in <laughs> military people, history. I, I imagine like most history teachers, that's like where they jump in. That's what they're excited about. So for me, um, my realization that I was sort of set up to fail, um, when it comes to understanding the history of my sex yeah. is when I gave birth. And, um, and so realizing that like, I was not prepared for a lot of the things that I would experience and not that history education would completely fix that, but it would yeah. help. Yeah. And I, th- I think there's a certain comfort level with conversations that should have been had. I mean, I'll be right in that boat with you of like having babies and things I've learned after the fact that I should have known way before. Way before. And why aren't we educating ourselves? But also, like, where's the resource other than sex ed or home ec? Right. No, this should be in almost every classroom. Maybe not math. I don't know how they would interweave that. But But one plus one is two. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) So, and I think this speaks really to the present and urgent need to teach women about the complicated history of birth. And I think this is better um, illustrated with some present information. Okay. So um, just out of curiosity, did you attend a birthing class before you gave I birth? I did. And I met some like really great friends that we're friends with now through that class. But it was offered through our healthcare provider like yeah. at the hospital that we were giving birth at. Yeah. Um, very eye-opening, but my husband probably squirmed through most of that. He's a health teacher. Yeah. So you can imagine the things that, like, we're talking about. He's like, yeah, I'm comfortable. I'm not comfortable. Yeah. There was a line. Yeah. I was like, oh, no. So we also attended a, a birthing class, and um, one of the things that struck me in retrospect was that in that birthing class, I watched a couple videos of people giving birth under different circumstances, okay. as I'm sure you did too. Yeah. And and, um, that were made in like eighty one. Yeah, yeah they were pretty old videos, but um, but those were the first births I'd ever seen. Oh really? And because I'm like a YouTube junkie, I was like home birth, hospital birth. I like Googled. Everything. You Googled everything. I sort of was just like, oh, they'll teach me what I need to know. And I had a friend that didn't do any of those and just showed up on day of, and she's like, let's just have a baby. I was like. You know nothing. Yeah, you know nothing. Right. And so one of the things that's really interesting to me that um, I learned recently is that back in the day, you didn't have to, there was no, like, you didn't have birthing class. No. You knew about birth because when a woman in your village was giving birth, all the women came. And so by the time you were actually of age to give birth yourself, you probably would have witnessed many births. Right? And like not just like on a video I've never screen. Witnessed another woman's birth live. Like yeah. in person. And I feel like I feel the like videos I would not have wanted to do what she was doing. No. <laughs> like I'm out. Yeah. The race is over. <laughs> but also like y- there's something really raw about being in the room, yeah. right? And like like actually like 
how long? I mean, for me, I was in labor for 48 hours. So like, so that's a long ass time. And part of that was like drug induced. Part of that was like, you know, we were watching Netflix, you know, like, you know, so like, it was like a a nice double date. (laughs) Yeah. And we were just chilling and there was like room service and that was great. And I, I think that having that like live lived experience about how long a birth could be, how there's like ups and downs. And it's not all this like crazy woman screaming. Like I think the one fact that always shocked me was like that everyone's water doesn't break. And that's when you go to the hospital. Like, yeah. I've had girlfriends that we, that's all we talk, you know, when your water breaks, what will you do? Yeah. That never happened. And a majority actually like statistically, doesn't happen. Yeah, mine never broke. Exactly, they break it for you at the hospital. Yeah. So like that moment that you see in every movie, yeah. or every TV show, like my water broke, and like that frantic, like rarely happens. It's very in the rare. World. Yeah. Yeah. Which is like that always blew me out. I was like, yeah. No, and how sad is that? That most women in our that is how we are learning about birth is yeah. like through Hollywood, which we all know is distorted anyway. Mm-hmm. We need to make sure that people are aware of the past so that they can make really wise choices. And today, the United States has really high rates of C-sections. The maternal death rate in the U.S. has been trending upward since 1987. Um, And so that is really unique because pretty much every other developing country, the trend is going going down. And so, um, and just as an example, so the next closest to us is the United Kingdom where nine, they have 9.2 maternal deaths per 100,000 live births. And so that's a huge improvement from centuries ago. We should make that very clear. But So in the UK, 9.2 per 100,000 births, and ours is 24.6. So ours is more than double the UK's maternal death rate. And so we are by far... So the UK is number two. We're number one. We are by far leading the developed world in maternal deaths. And that's really, really scary. And then the thing that really hits me is the the relationship between poverty and Mm. that and that data, um, as well as race. And so, um, for African American women, um, 4.2, sorry, 42.4 deaths per 100,000 live births. So there, so their data is way, like the average is 24.6, but for African American women, it's like double that. Um, for, uh, Native Americans or Alaskan Natives, um, it's 30.4 deaths per 100,000, so also very, very high. I know people listening can't see my face, but my jaw is on the floor. This is wild. Yeah. Um, for other groups, like um, for Asian and Pacific Islander women, as well as white women and Hispanic women, we're below that 24.6 average of all Americans. Um, but so some of the factors that equate to this our race and poverty. And, um, and so one of the other really interesting things about this is a lot of women are dying from childbirth in the weeks, uh, days and weeks after After, leaving the hospital. And so it's from things like hemorrhages and, and, you know, things that occur afterwards. Isn't this all coming back to like the being, you have to be your own best advocate when it comes to your body. And like black women aren't typically believed by physicians and like, 
Isn't that something that's going on it's, right now in our culture? It's so. definitely a factor, but I would argue that I and I don't want to blame, you know, b- black women or other people for not knowing because that's not their responsibility. No. And uh, so what I'll r- point out re- really quickly is that. Um, well, so actually, they act, the, the, one of the articles that I read talked about some of the, the reasons for this. Okay. Um, so one of the biggest is that in the United States, new mothers are mostly older. And so, and like you, like you and I both gave birth in our thirties and that was, vi- sorry, <laughs> sorry, we're old. Um, but like, like women they being, they like called us something. We're, um, we're not geriatric we're yet, not geriatric, but we're, yeah, but we're like, something. They're, yeah. They're like pre-geriatric. high risk yeah, or something. Yeah. Pre-geriatric. And it was like, I'm sorry, what? Yeah. So that, that is, get my walker from the car. <laughs> that is a factor. Um, Apparently, a lot of the pregnancies in the United States are unplanned. People aren't necessarily healthy or ready for that pregnancy. And so there's a lot of chronic problems and issues that exist before they become pregnant that make the pregnancy itself problematic. And then a lot of things that cause maternal death um, are like hemorrhages. And all of those things are increased by C-sections. And so in the U.S. It's a major surgery. You're put under. Yeah. Yep. Um, so that's pretty problematic. And then the other thing is, is the health, which you alluded to the healthcare system, um, which is just that a lot of new mothers, like all our health, health insurance is tied to your employer. And so when we're talking about the problem being that like, um, poor mothers are, um, having all of these issues, a piece of that is you know, and being able to follow up with your employer, not being afraid of the cost of, uh, not employer, of with your healthcare provider. Mm-hmm. Like, okay, I, if something feels wrong, I'm going to call, I'm going to go in and not right. worrying that it costs anything. And unfortunately, because it's tied to your... But like, all these things too can be stress related. So if you're not yep. financially stable and have all of your needs met, then your risks are going to be higher because your stress level will be higher. When you bring that newborn home, all of those factors come into play. Yep. Like, it's it's crazy to be a new mom. It's crazier if you have to worry about where your next meal is coming from as a new mom. Like, yeah. This is also, so one of the interesting things is that we're making a ton of progress in uh, the developed world and in the United States in particular with saving babies. So infant mortality rate is at its lowest point in history. Well, at the same time, um, infant mortality is still much higher than maternal mortality, but the trends are happening because the conversation is more about how do you save these the babies. babies. Yeah. yeah. So I, I don't think that's necessarily an, an issue that we should be worried about. Personally, what I think is the biggest problem is um, Lay it on me. What is health care um, right. and, and making sure that that's accessible and available to all women regardless of employment. Um, and and like period it doesn't matter that needs to change Um, but I think also we can see the emphasis on the infant and not on the mother and to me you can't segregate those two things because if you want to help the baby help the mom right like right like the best thing you can do for that baby is make sure that the mother is like mentally, physically well and able to help their child. And I can tell you, too, like, the difference between... We have great health insurance. We could have stayed in the hospital for almost four days if we wanted to. Whereas there was a woman in the room next to me, I can remember her being like, well, we can only stay for one because our health insurance covers that. You do not have breastfeeding down. You do not know how to take a baby home in a car seat. Like, 
Yep. That is not okay. It should be a standard or at least, you know, to have that practice where it's available to everybody. Yeah. To have that choice, whether we're going to hotel stay at the hospital for four days yep. or getting pushed out. And same thing, returning to work. Right. Many women have to go back at six weeks. Six weeks. Yeah. I can't. And if you have a and no, no you, one okay. recommends, no one recommends six weeks. Everybody, every study into that says minimum four months. So it's it's unbelievable how we have these policies and practices in place that are not only detrimental to the babies, but detrimental to the mothers that are caring for these babies. And I know personally, I was able to take, I mean, we're very privileged and we like probably should make that yeah, very clear. Super. I was able to be home with my baby because of my job and because of my maternity leave for five months. And at five months, I was traumatized that I had to go back. You know, like it was... It was hard. Kelsey's not a workaholic like I am. <laughs> right. I was ready to go back in six weeks. But it's totally different. And I had access. I could stay home for 16 weeks if I wanted. And that's a huge privilege. Yeah. Yeah. So. so one of the other big issues is that, and I and I would argue other beyond healthcare is is simply just in practice. So healthcare is more of a policy thing. Right. But what doctors could change immediately is we have dozens of prenatal checkups. Right. You're in there like once a month for all the oh, early yeah. months, and then the closer you get to birth, you're in there like every week and then every day. You know. And for yeah. me, for me, because I was two weeks late. Son of a gun. <laughs> because I was in there every single day. So you have all these checkups, right? And they're all about monitoring your, like, um, blood pressure, right? They're worried about preeclampsia. They're oh, yeah. worried about um, gestational diabetes. They're so worried. They always kind of talk about, like, baby first in those kind of scenarios, yep. too. Like, What's the like, baby's heart rate? What's yeah. the baby's, you know, all those How things. are you feeling? They always, like, are they moving? Ask, ask for movement information. Yep. Yeah. Yep. Is the baby moving? And then you give birth you're in the hospital for a few days, yep. and the next time you see your OB is six weeks later. Yep. You have one postpartum checkup. One. For me, um, what happened was I had a uh, retained placenta, and oh so... Gosh, so scary. Super scary. So explain that to people listening. So basically, when you, when, you, um, when you give birth, you birth the baby, and then the second thing is you have to birth your placenta. When you have a C-section, what happens is they cut you open, they take the baby out, and then they basically vacuum. like vacuum out everything <laughs> that's in your uterus, and then over the next few days, just like every woman who gave Gave birth vaginally. Just, sorry, pause you here. Yeah. I'm just imagining you explaining this to a high school class. Oh, yeah. So then they vacuum. Then they out. grab a vacuum. <laughs> The thing is, okay, but but here's the thing. So that's a really great point, which is the boys in the room might have that reaction. They but should, also and then they should get comfortable with talking about periods but, for crying out loud. But also, here's the thing: is that I didn't see the vacuums. Right. No. You know who did see the vacuums? My husband, who was standing right next to me, <laughs> right? Like men need to be prepared for that. Yeah. I, anyway, so um, so what? Ha- after you give birth and they sew you back up and everything, yeah. um, over the next few days, just like all the other women who give vaginal birth, your your Body uterus is, is supposed to 
shed any bit of the placenta that's still in there. Yeah. And what happened in my case was that it didn't. And um, I had an infection when I gave birth, which is what led to the C-section. Okay. And so um, I had an infection and retained placenta, meaning the placenta, there's Basically chunks like, of placenta. Check, 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 all the scary things So happening. it basically infection and placenta like fused together and created this big abscess in my uterus and they didn't catch it until my six week appointment because they didn't check in with me for six weeks it's so bizarre so I'm in the room and the doctor was like yeah so tomorrow you're gonna come in and you're gonna have an emergency surgery to get this out and so it was great, and I it was I, it was fine, and I Thankfully, recovered. The doctors figured it out with, right. at that six week checkup. Yeah, but that six week checkup is also where they screen for postpartum depression. And when I walked in that day, I felt great. I had no idea that I had retained placenta. Yeah. I was like ready for like the check to go swimming and exercise and like enjoy <laughs> my life. And they were like, no. And if you don't know Kelsey, she's a fitness fanatic. <laughs> so she's like, can I run today? Yeah. How about tomorrow? How about tomorrow? Whereas the day like, after? Yeah. opposite. Brooke, I'm just like, how many more days do I get in my pajamas before I have to go to an office? <laughs> <laughs> so... Um, so I passed the postpartum screening with flying colors. That's wild. But, um, the, uh, problem was that because I had retained placenta, my body was still acting like I was pregnant. Oh, you were high. I was still like. (laughs) You were high on hormones. Yeah. And so six weeks after that. Crash. Total crash. And, um, so I was not, they didn't catch my postpartum depression because they weren't checking in with me mm-hmm. in the in the weeks after, they weren't treating my surgery like when I gave birth, right? Yeah. And that really should have been like start over date. And so um, fortunately, I'm like married to a counselor and, you know, and so like, like, and again, here's privilege, right? right? Like all these things get caught because of privilege. And I think about women that don't have all of these things and An don't have the self-advocacy to say, hey, I, this is not me. Uh, this is not how I normally am. What's going on? Well, that and like, you don't have the added stressors outside of being a new mom. You have security. Yep. You're fed. Yep. Clothed. You have a roof over your head. You can pay your bills. So you can check in emotionally with yourself. You have that space. To, to do say, that. say, like, mm, this seems weird to me. Same. That makes a lot of sense. And so I guess this all illustrates how much the lack of funding for and lack of healthcare coverage for women, the lack of um, appointments for women after they give birth. Um, you know, if a mom chooses to quit her job to stay home with her kid, which is something that I think like most conservative Americans think she probably should do anyway, she loses her health insurance. So it's like, make that, make that practical, um, for, for a woman to, if she wants to stay home with her child, then great. Let's make that an actually doable thing. Yeah. Um, and, and single moms, like, who don't have, you know, a there spouse who a might. a national parade for single parents. Yep. Moms in particular who give vaginal births or yep. whatever type of birth you give. But that shit, like, pedestal. Yeah. You're doing this solo? Yeah. Holy crap. Yep. Like, so scary. So and scary. who's checking in with you? Yeah. Yep. I was raised by a single mom, and she's badass. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. Cheers to that mom. She gets a parade. Yeah. <laughs> Give her a parade. 
Um, so, I, I mean, personally, I think that the emphasis on prenatal care is obviously really important, and it should continue after birth, and Absolutely. people should be checking in with women. And I didn't have issues with breastfeeding, but I know countless women who did, and um, and so, you know, those poor women who are struggling to feed their child, their child is upset, not sleeping, and uh-huh. so it they're compounds. not sleeping, it compounds, and, um, and I think that they need to have those weekly checkups. I think that women should automatically be referred to physical therapists for pelvic floor treatment. And and then, of course, counselors. I mean, I experienced postpartum depression, and even if people don't have depression, there's sort of like the baby blues. and Which I totally experienced after my second son, and counseling got me through it. It's yeah. Like you have to self-advocate, and you have to recognize where something might help. And I don't think counseling works for everybody, but... It, it was nice to know I had a resource available. And that you're not alone. Right. And that this is very normal. Exactly. Very normal. So all of these things, we're talking about current events right now, but all of these things are issues. I mean, you and I basically walked into birth, walked into this experience blind, and maybe that was better because, like, ignorance is bliss. Yeah. But also, <laughs> there's a long history here that I feel dumb not knowing, and I don't know how that history would have changed the choices that I made, but it's not fair that this wasn't, that my husband and I were not prepared for this, and history class certainly could have helped. Absolutely. We're going to take a short break, and uh, we'll be right, I know, (laughs) we're going to be right back, and we'll talk about the history of birth. For lesson plan ideas and how to teach women's history, visit our website, www.remedialherstory.com. Follow us on Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook at Remedial Herstory. If you think what we're doing is needed, please consider joining our Patreon community. Patreon allows you to sponsor a podcast with a small donation. Patrons get access to bonus materials, extended episodes, insider information, and gear. Patrons who give at the $10 tier will receive a Remedial Herstory sticker. We want to sincerely thank some of our patrons for their contributions. Kent and Jamie Heckle from Ohio have been some of our biggest fans from the beginning. Thank you so much for your contribution. And a huge thank you to Bridget Erlinson from Connecticut. As an educator, your endorsement and passion for equitable education means a great deal. Thank you for your support and endorsement. You can find a link to our Patreon page on our website, www.remedialherstory.com. Or you can go to patreon.com and search for Remedial Herstory. Welcome back, Brooke. (laughs) All right, to talk about the women's sphere is super hard in a history class. And I've personally struggled with the question of what to cut because to me, all of it's important. So um, I teach history in different ways for different groups of students. And um, two of the kind of common ways that people teach a history class. Not, sorry, 9th and 12th, right? Yeah, but I mostly teach 11th and 12th graders. Okay, so you're like top tier top tier kids. <laughs> um, but that, 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 there's a whole age, like, um, uh, 
academic and cognitive ability range in right. there. That so I've actually taught kids who are 11th grade students who are reading at like a third and fourth grade reading level. Whoa. And it's incredibly hard. Um, oh, is it? Yeah. <laughs> um, because literally every document that I give them in class is not something that they can read. So, um, so one thing that I like to do in my classes, especially with those with a wide range of students, is to teach history thematically rather than chronologically. Okay. So all of us learned chronological history. It was sort of like this era, here's a bunch of things that happened, and probably like in time they'll go through. Okay. And then I like to teach history thematically as an alternative to that because it helps students understand one idea, a central theme, a central theme, and they can compare and contrast different eras. So I teach chronologically within that theme, but I'll teach like the first unit of the year is I I teach economics and labor history. And so we just go from, you know, whatever the beginning of the um, courses to present day. Um, and we learn about economics and labor history. And so you can make a comparison between like the industrial revolution and the roaring twenties. Um, we can also see how like the progressive era was different or, or similar. Um, I think either way you teach history chronologically or thematic. And I, I teach chronological history in all my AP classes. Um, so I, I think it doesn't really matter how you do it. There is it is possible to build in the domestic sphere. Okay. So for the classes that I teach thematically, I'm thinking about making one of my themes the domestic sphere. Okay. And basically just we're going to learn about that laundry list that I read off at the beginning of this podcast. The laundry Yeah. It's good. <laughs> Literal laundry. <laughs> um, if you teach it chronologically... I think that basically every era when you introduce things, you would just need to make sure that you build in a topic of, you know, from the domestic sphere. And so that that really fits in that era and time period. Um, To aid teachers today, what I think we should do is do a brief history of birth and... um, this is a bit ambitious. We're going to do world history from the perspective and narrow theme of birth. Um, And I'm going to fly through the early parts because... Basically, not a lot changes for a millennia. Um, So, in history, vagina owners were usually accompanied in birth by other vagina owners. (laughs) I'm sorry. Usually it's me doing these references. You just, like, came really hot with vaginas. Vaginas, yeah. Um, No, I think that this is an important distinction, though, because... Women today, that word means a lot of things, and yeah. you know, gender, like, and versus sex, right? So I say vagina owners because they, these are the people that are actually physically giving birth, <laughs> right? And so not people who own vaginas, <laughs> right? Because there are but other women have vaginas. There are women who don't have vaginas, and that's okay. <laughs> oh my so, um, myths in ancient history talked about how goddesses were always present when you were given birth, which I really like that visual, <laughs> right? Like being surrounded by these like badass goddess women who are just like cheering you on. In the Mayan tradition, um, when you gave birth, the midwives would be um, next to you, or sorry, Aztec, Aztec tradition the midwives would be next to you and they would treat it like you were at war. And so they would like have war cries and like cheer for you. And it was awesome. 
um, the Greek writers who were mostly male um, wrote about birth. And okay. so there, there's some records about how it was practiced, what people did. Um, and even in Greek time, ancient Greek times, we could see that interventions were um, usually done, but only when the mother or baby were already dead. So all the different tools that people use um, in like to help extract the baby, those weren't employed until everything had failed. Like all natural options had failed. And so um, most of it was about like death rights. And so wanting the mother and the baby to be buried separately. And so they would want to extract the baby in order to bury them. Interesting. So after the Greek period, there's this big lapse in the historical record. And Historians refer to that as the Dark Ages, right, in at least the West. Okay. Um, Arabic writers are definitely recording a lot of things, but that knowledge is lost to the Western world um, because it's not being translated and brought over. Um, The practices are seen as, like, barbarian, right? So there's this, like, like, divide. And so basically for, like, 900 years, there's no new literature produced. Just a short period. Just a short period um, about about how birth is being um, practiced and and what what people are doing. So in the 1500s, which is the Renaissance, we see sort of the craft being picked up again by um, intellectual writers. And um, so the first, like... Um, obstetric test is um, the Rosengarten, which is, I believe, German. It was written by a male apothecary, and it provided instructions on how to rotate the baby with pressure on the abdomen to get it into the proper position, and a couple different tools that they were using at the time to extract the baby. And so it's kind of crazy to me that it's not really until this point that people are recording and explaining that you can rotate the baby from the outside. To some, get it into or it's to called. get it into position for birth, right. right? And so, for those that you know aren't familiar with birth, the when a baby is being born, the head should be down, the feet should be up, and the fit the baby's nose should be pointed towards your back, yeah, right? Your tailbone. your tailbone. And when it's not in that position, it can be in- incredibly painful or impossible to give birth. And so um, it's really important that you're able to rotate the baby because if you don't, then yeah, that's nothing's it. Nothing's going to happen. Right, nothing's going to happen. It's not coming out. So, um, so women at the time were largely illiterate. And so these books are being written in the Renaissance. Few women except for or like elite women are able to read. So I'm assuming that not much of this is getting down to the average woman giving birth um, with midwives and you know her fellow villagers oh, around not her. Literature, but I imagine <clears throat> the spoken word in, this, and in ex- smaller villages would probably be present, but we don't have anything to share on that. Correct. <laughs> so um so what, yeah, what we know about what midwives are aware of is, is really hard to say. Um, in France, uh, shortly after this, a school of midwifery is wow. founded. And this... Is it midwifery? Or midwifery <laughs> um, is founded. And so, but this is a school for men. Oh. Right? Because Rocky. schools aren't, aren't for women at this point. 
Okay. Uh, okay, she says, <laughs> defeated. Mm-hmm. As my nostrils flare. <laughs> <laughs> um, so the result of this and another text was a huge tension between sort of the history of women surrounding other women, right? Vagina owners all gathering together for the birth of a baby. Um, and now you have all these male scholars and new doctors coming out of their midwifery school. Mm-hmm. Um, and they are now wanting to be present at birth, right? Men wanting to be in the room. I'd imagine there's some kind of social issue with that. Like, if you're not married to this woman, can you be present in the room? Yes, and actually this is a really important part of the problem because social custom and social norm is that you don't see, you don't interact with a woman in her private sphere, right? You are always accompanied by a chaperone. Um, And so one of the problems, especially in the Victorian era, is that some of the male doctors who who do start to become more common in births um, will not look. So they are helping a woman give birth, and they're not... What are you not looking at? So they're not looking at the baby. They're not looking at the vagina. They're not looking at what's happening. What are you doing down there? They're just feeling around with their hands. Okay, and we'll get into this more because it's super problematic. Okay, sorry. So in the, in the 1600s, male midwives would, uh, grew in numbers, and in particular it sort of took off in, in France. Um, a lot of the men were driven to this field because they personally lost wives, oh. sisters, mothers to childbirth. And so they wanted to do something about it. And I thought that was kind of a neat part of history and, and sort of showing that this is a huge problem like uh, mother's mortality rate is is really part of the problem and they're trying to propelling men to get into to do something yeah so in britain there's a whole bunch of doctors um that were all from the chamberlain family and so they invented the forceps they actually made them better and so they um the initial forceps had like curves for the baby's head to these like they're kind of like big spoons right right like scoop the baby's head but they weren't curved to actually fit through the woman's pelvis and so the chamberlains improved that going back into world history cesarean sections had always been performed but It was a last-ditch effort to save the baby when the mother was clearly dying or already dead. And so the C-section in... It wasn't done as, like, a proactive approach No. The C-section was a death sentence for the mother. And so um, when that was performed, it was basically, we can still feel the baby moving, cut her open. And she was dying. That was it. And so these were done, and there's, there's evidence that they've been done throughout world history, all the way back to the Greeks and before. I'm always weary about discussing firsts in women's history, and part of the reason for that is because women's history is a developing field, and right. so people are discovering new women who did stuff, and then the person that you thought was first is actually, like, third, you know? Right. And so, so that's sort of problematic. And, um, um, but the first undisputed, and at least in the West, <laughs> right? Quite the title. Quite the title. Um, person to complete a cesarean section um, on a woman who actually lived and survived the C-section um, was um, Mary Donnelly. And she this took place in Ireland, and she was a female midwife. And um, 
she was this was in uh the s- late 1700s wow that's she, still early still what? early yeah um but it it's by no means the beginning of like a huge trend to do them it was sort of like oh that crazy lady in ireland who <laughs> cut another woman open um so Alice O'Neill is, um, she's the wife, she's 30 years old, she's the wife of an Irish farmer, and she'd been in labor for 12 days. No. I know. No. This poor Every woman. Every woman that's listening to this podcast right now is like, just cried. No, thank you. Yeah. So, um, she cut her st- stomach open with a razor while an assistant ran to get silk so that she could sew her back up. So, she cuts silk. her... S- yeah, oh she cuts goodness. her stomach, and she's just, like, holding it while this other woman runs a mile to go get silk. I love Ireland. Right. Of course that happens. <clears throat> so like pulling wool off of a sheep at the same time. <laughs> right. Yeah, they're basically just, like, making it happen. Quick, make a sweater. Wait. Baby's coming out. We gotta do this. <laughs> so, um, t- like, 20-whatever days later, Alice is much better, and she survives. And she's the first woman to survive in world a C-section in world history. Imagine the sleep you're taking after a 12-day labor. Holy God. Well, you're not, because you have a baby, but... Someone else take the baby. The sheep's in charge. <laughs> the sheep's in charge. So, despite the fact that the surgery worked, it's not really uh, the beginning of a trend, because the medical community in Europe... It's still very scary. ...is... Yeah, is really concerned about the validity of this procedure. Um, few people were r- willing to do it because it was scary to them. Um, and it so- begins sort of this debate about which life is more valuable in a, in a situation. still happening today. Oh, it's a, it's a constant debate. Um, and so there's a, there was much more support um, because they were worried that, like, if you do a C-section, you might kill the baby. And so there was much more, and this would be a really cool thing to look into with your mm. students. Like, look at some of the things that doctors are saying in this time period. Um, and and basically, there was a lot more support for killing the baby to save the mother. And that actually surprised me. Um, and so people were hesitant to do the C-section because um, they they saw as too big of a risk to the mother. And there were other ways to um, save the mother by getting rid of the baby and and, um, and helping her out that way. So um, there was one called cranometry, um, which was just a, basically a, a way to abort late, very late-term abortion to save the mom. Um, so, and then they were doing that back then, which was also really interesting to me. Yeah. Keep politics out of it. Yeah. Um... The danger of leaving things to nature was still really problematic. And so, you know, many women were still very wary of a lot of the different interventions, even forceps and other things. Can you imagine what we didn't know back then, not knowing what you don't know? Yeah. And you walk in and there's all these instruments sitting on a table. Oh, And we're going to use these on you. Yeah. Like, I'm sorry, what? Yeah. I just came from cleaning dishes. <laughs> you're going to use what on me? Right. <laughs> right. Things that you've never seen before. Very, yeah. Well, when you're in an un- unfamiliar environment, you're with unfamiliar people, and they're telling you to trust them. Like, that was always the thing, too. Like, I mean, you can go into a whole history of doctors and the evolution of the doctor. Yeah. But they were essentially a community member that, like, cared about somebody else and just did better. Yeah. And then it evolved into an educational practice. But it's like, wait... <laughs> You're just going to come in and do what to me? Right. 
One of the things that's really interesting about uh, an interesting pattern in the domestic sphere and in the history of birth is that some of these, some of the women who sort of um, help propel the field forward are high-profile women who either die or sort of make okay um, certain practices. And so one of the people is Princess Charlotte, who is the daughter of um, King George IV. Uh, she's his only child. And so this is in early 1800s Great Britain. Um so this is in so in 1817 at the age of 21 she went into labor with her first baby and for anybody who doesn't know your first baby usually comes late um, or is later than than another one and so so that's it's more common and so she was two weeks after what they thought was her due date and she was in labor for 50 hours and they were hesitant to. Um, to really intervene. The baby was born stillborn, and um, the placenta was removed with great difficulty. And so six hours later, Charlotte dies too. Whoa. So it was pretty horrible. And so it sort of led to people really um, questioning, well, should we have intervened? Should we have done something more? So here's a woman who had a complete natural birth, and it sort of leads to people saying, oh, they should have done more, because they had forceps and other things there, and they didn't use them. Because they're probably debating. It's probably a room full of dudes that can't make a decision. Yeah. Um, This is really sad, though. Her obstetrician, uh, Sir Richard Croft, he was widely criticized, and he ends up killing himself a few days later um, because he was just mortified um, at at what he had done. Yeah, Yeah. and certainly it was not his fault, but... um, but Imagine he felt, yeah, yeah. So this is also really interesting because, um, and it leads us to another woman who's going to be really important in the history of birth. King George is left without an heir, and so the first, um, the throne passes to first his brother, and then when his brother dies, it goes to his brother's niece, Queen Victoria. That's right. Okay. So, okay. so that that's an important bit of the history. We're going to come back to Queen Victoria in a moment. Um, so. Going back to the battle that's sort of taking place between the midwives and the male doctors. So ultimately, though, doctors abolish the midwives in this battle for control over what's going on in the birth room. And they basically get a monopoly on birth. In the United States, um, by 1915, in Philadelphia, the midwives had, in a 10-year period, had fallen from 21 to 6 registered midwives. So just a huge decline in the number of women that are actually doing this anymore. And they're being replaced by male doctors. Do you feel like this is also social pressure coming in as well, that more and more people are having hospital births or births by physicians so that more and more women are saying that that is the way to go? Like, what are So I think factors? this is where it's hard to segregate women's history from the regular history because right. you have to remember this is the Enlightenment. This is the scientific, like, revolution. revolution. Yep. So pe- there's a lot of emphasis on... Um, medicine and on science and a lot of, you know, the old wives tales that dominated midwifery is, are not necessarily backed by science. Well, yeah, they might be debunked at this point or, you know, misproven. 
am I remembering this wrong too? Like a lot of midwives would be seen as potential witches, like at some periods of time, because they knew more about the human body than people should. Yeah, and well, and because they often were like helping women with birth control and and right. other things that were you know forbidden by the church or or whatever. Yeah. So yeah, so that there was sort of the stigma about women scholars, women who know stuff, and and any time a woman seemed to know more than other people, it was sort of like. Bah! Yeah, you know. Please don't be the smartest person in the room, woman. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> How dare you? <clears throat> so, um, one of the things that's really bad about this, though, is the emphasis on science. Sure, I'm fine with that, but. Um, we already talked about how the men would not look under the woman's gown while assisting. So blowing my mind. The other thing is the emphasis on modesty. Male medical students were not allowed to actually watch births when they were in training. Okay, so you don't, so you're a dude, you're training to become a doctor to help give, women give birth, okay? You don't attend births like other women yeah, in the village like, go. All right, here's your and patch, here's, you're up. Yeah, the only way that they learned about birth was through textbooks. And then when they go into the birthing room, they're not looking, right? So it's just like, what? Like, how are they actually like supposed to... come out of butts and stuff. Like, I don't know. I mean, they read a textbook, but, like, come on. Like, I'm a teacher. I obviously think that we should read stuff, but I also feel like... Actual practice is <laughs> Hands-on, people. <laughs> like, this, this is real. So... Especially for doctors. Like, I don't want someone plumbing my bathroom who doesn't know how to plumb a bathroom. Right. Who has done it before as an apprentice watching someone else. Right. Not to equate women's bodies to pulling, but there's the, the sure. equation. Like, <laughs> you have to see it to do it. Right. Yeah. Like, I'm a plumber. I've read a textbook. No! Like, no. you know, I'm not hiring you. Yes. Any to anything is out. Yeah. So... Um, the other bit of the problem is germs. And so women were, used to be giving birth in their homes. Right. Now they're giving birth. Where and When you give birth in your home, all the germs in the are space yours. are yours, right? So safe. When you go to a hospital and you start giving birth, um, you're now exposed to a whole lot more germs. And this is the era before people really understand the importance of sterilization. Right. And so There's Florence Nightingale. Right. She's like the queen of the sterilization. <laughs> yes. <laughs> The germ, the issue with germs, um, leads to really, really high maternal death rates, and so it's super weird because we see a decline in midwives and an increase in maternal death. You would think people would, like do math here. One, so here's some data: um, between two and eight per 100 de- deliveries would result in a woman dying. So, like, we're now talking about you know hundred thousand. They were talking about in a hundred. So, like, wow. two to eight percent of women are dying in birth right that's wild um this is 10 times the rate of a woman giving birth in their home so that's what? simply just germs and and the medical practices of doctors yeah and yeah in new york in 1840 80 percent of the women who gave birth in a hospital died 80 percent what? Why, like, I don't, I, I'm a little dumbfounded by this data. Like, why would a woman ever go to a hospital? How would you, as a family member, allow someone else to go to a hospital? It's like, no, 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 you give birth at home. Right, and we're two people that gave birth in a hospital. It makes me really, like, think about and that. And we both had C-sections. Yep. And interventions in medicine. So, there was also a lot of women who, after birth, were invalids. And, um, 
Wait, explain definition of invalid. An invalid is basically, like, a woman who is recluse and... Or it could be a man, too, but who is recluse and, like, doesn't... Can't get out of bed because they're so sickly. Oh, okay? And so, um... A lot of the invalids were actually people who had given birth, but they had some sort of problem after birth that there were no methods of treatment for. One of the biggest ones was when the uterus would slip down after birth, so it would, like, shift in the pelvis, Mm -hmm. and it was basically, like, a dropped pelvis, and it would make it really, really uncomfortable for women to move around. And so, basically, after birth, like, these women... Lay in bed. They would just lay in bed forever. And, and now that's like they would stitch that up. Yeah, you just sew like you sew I mean you just up. sew it all back up. Um you say it like it's a yeah, witch yeah, episode. You do that and it's done. <laughs> Thank you, doctors, for figuring that out. Thank you, doctors. Um one of the one of the reasons that that happened is to help with the pl- pulling the placenta out is they would pull on the cord and try to help the placenta come out and in oh. doing that they were like yanking the uterus down and actually like hurting pulling it pulling, yeah pulling it out um, sometimes they actually pulled the uterus out of oh women God. so that's horrifying put a PSA on this I know Women would also experience tearing, and they had very few remedies for that. Um, One of the worst types of vaginal tearing was tearing to the fistula, which is the wall between either the vagina and the bladder or the vagina and the rectum. And so when the wall was damaged, um, urine or feces would come into (gasps) the vagina, and basically it was horrible. Women would just constant infection, constant itching. There was no solution and nobody knew how to fix it. So you would just stay in bed. You would just do anything. It was like, it was the worst thing that could possibly happen to you. So this is where we introduce a very controversial person in the history of birth. And one of the things you'll notice here is I'm like a lot of the main pioneers in this field are men. Mm -hmm. And um, and so that's important because the women's, like, the, you can sort of see the men trickling into the women's feet, crowding it for profit and other things. And um, J. Marion Sims was certainly one of those people. He wanted to help women with these maladies, um, but uh, probably because he realized, you know, there's this is an area of need and there's a lot of opportunity for fame and fortune if I can figure this out. Right. So, um, so in order to do it though, he needs to experiment. And a lot of these things are specific to the human anatomy. So it's not like you could experiment on, you know, like some animal and there has to be a dead person or a dead person. So, um, this is also the time before anesthesia. And he wants to do surgeries on people and, like, test it. And so there aren't a lot of women volunteering for this. Rightfully so. Right? So um, he was a slave owner from Alabama. And so the easiest women that he could get no, access to. don't do it. Yeah. Come on. Were enslaved women. And so um, we, he practiced on, and I should say practice, like he's basically testing out his theories on these women. Um, And I would argue that they were essentially tortured for the greater good of women. Many of them, we don't know their names. We know the names of three of them. Okay. And we only know their first names. So Lucy, Anarka, and Betsy. 
And um, I'll just ta- tell you about two of them. So Lucy was one of this, these women. She gave birth in her teens. And he wrote in his notebook, um, that was days before the days of anesthetic. Um, sorry, that was before the days of anesthetics. And the poor girl on her knees bore the operation with great heroism and bravery. <sighs> Anarka was one of those women who was suffering from uh, tearing of the vaginal fistula, okay? And so she, in particular, really needed this problem to be solved. Um, Anarka was um, the first woman to actually have her vaginal fistula surgically repaired, and it was done by Sims. She had over 30 operations (gasps) practiced on her before he got it right. Um, So... This is just like these poor women. We don't know anything about their opinions. We don't know anything what about like a scary house. Like that like imagine your wife or your partner or someone that you are, are having a baby with is going into this like house of horrors where yeah. this doctor is doing these procedures on them. Yeah. Like this is a nightmare. This is a nightmare. Um, so it's hard because cons- we, it's really hard to understand how much these women consented or didn't consent to what's going on. Um, and it's really uh, a huge historical debate, but it's a hard debate because there aren't a lot of documents. Yeah, and without hearing their narrative, you can't really decide on that. Right. Being enslaved, it's really hard to say that they consented. Their owners consented to them, but that's not the same. Um Sims claimed that the women begged him to do the procedures, and that's certainly possible if they proceed, if the conditions that they're living in are as horrible as described, right? Yeah, we could paint a different narrative of this, of being like, this is a man helping slaves yep. to get access to modern medicine. Yep. Um, the, there's also, he gave them, um, he didn't have anesthesia, but he would give them opium for the pain. And okay. so some people think that maybe the women were like addicted to the opium that he was giving. Oh, so they were like, give me more surgery, but really like, give me more opium. Um, and maybe that's true. Um, but his beliefs about both women and black people are really controversial and well documented and okay. so you know he basically he um, they're less than he yeah he believed there's there was sort of a common belief at the time that black people didn't feel as much pain as white people and so Whoa. he he talked about how he wouldn't ever practice this on a white woman because she wouldn't be able to handle it whereas these these black women can take it you know um, which is just like such a messed up belief um, so his History is really complicated. At the same time, it does lead to cures for for these things. In 1941, um, African Americans sort of look back at this history, and um, John A. Kenny of the Tuskegee Institute. he gave, he wrote a paper called The Negro's Contribution to Surgery. Which, if anyone doesn't know, the Tuskegee Institute is a historically black college. And so very well-educated people have gone through this institution and done amazing and incredible work. Totally. So um, people consider um, Keeney the um, dean of black dermatology. And so he wrote, I suggest that a monument be raised and dedicated to the nameless Negroes who have contributed so much to surgery by the guinea pig route, which I thought was a really interesting thing that, you know, and these women... Something that needs to be talked about and highlighted because it is incredibly valuable to modern medicine. Yep. 
And yeah, so and Sims has history. statues to him, but the women who had the surgeries practiced on them over and over and over again. <laughs> Don't. So shocking. Right, right. Every now. time you tell me these things, like, blown away. Yeah. Across the, uh, across the ocean in Edinburgh, uh, James Young Simpson is one of the first people to use chloroform as a form of anesthetics um, on a woman. Her name was Mrs. Carstairs, and she was so grateful for the anesthesia uh, during her birth that she actually named her daughter Anesthesia. Stop <laughs> it. I thought that was awesome. So Simpson then, after the success in this woman's birth, he um, calls upon the medical community to employ this as sort of like a, this is the greatest thing that you can do for humanity. Um, But the medical community is really, really um, concerned about what this would do, how this would mess up long-term effects, right? So um, in 1853, Queen Victoria volunteers to use anesthesia um, on, in her uh, eighth birth. And so she has tons of kids. Uh, so she uses chloroform, and um, because of her sort of modeling, it becomes common practice. Boom. Boom. Thank you, Queen Celebrity Victoria. influencer in her time. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> so um, in the 20th century, the mortality rate really falls dramatically with the introduction of a whole bunch of different sort of antibacterial, penicillin, um, clean, sterile. clean, sterile environments that come from lots of discoveries um, in the late 1800s. Um, the ultrasound was introduced in eight. Uh, 1958, uh, and this helps to improve fetus and infant survival. Um, Today, maternal death rates are very low in the developed world. Childbirth is still about 100 times more dangerous for the baby than it is for the mother. Um, In developing countries, however, maternal mortality is still a major problem, and in parts of Africa beyond the reach of obstetric services, the maternal mortality rate even today is as high as 1%. Across the globe, one woman dies of pregnancy every minute of every day, which means that multiple... Say that one again. Every minute of every... So someone is dying. Dozens of times over the course of this podcast. Oh my gosh. Yep. So one of the exciting trends is that the battle that occurred throughout history between the midwife and the male doctor is changing, and women are reclaiming this job back I for themselves. Feel like I was like, we have to get to this. I know way too many women right now that are becoming midwives and like going into this field, and this is something that they're or, or obstetricians, right? Exactly. They're becoming doctors and wanting I know, to do I it. I love that we have female OBGYNs that we can go see and talk to, and like that's mm-hmm. now part of our natural life. Absolutely. So one of the interesting things is that all of the pioneers that I mentioned in the history, except for Mary Donnelly with the C-section, were men. And so, um, you know, so this the trend here is going to be bringing it back to the women's sphere and bringing back sort of that, that control. And um, and I wonder if we can sort of take a lesson from the, the past and, you know, encourage women to have women around them. For teachers, there's a lot of approaches that you can have uh, in teaching about the history of birth in your classroom. Certainly, you could find articles about any one of the topics we've discussed here and plug it into your history lesson where it's chronologically relevant. Um, You could also look into the debates that doctors had about whether the mother or the 
fetus was more important. Um, there, those historical documents are out there, and you could resurface them and have your students debate this in class. Um, of course, both are important, but that might be an interesting way to bring history alive. You can also look at the debate about the Dr. Sims and Anarka and Lucy and Betsy and whether or not those women actually consented, and you can have the students decide what how we should remember Sims. Um, I'm going to share a lesson plan with everybody, which is um, another sneaky way to teach women's history through images. And so I'm going to put up some paintings um, and and visuals of women giving birth. Um, and you can see in these images sort of how birth and the perspective on birth really dramatically changes. In the earlier ones, they are much more um, graphic and like honoring of the female sort of um, intense experience. And in the latter ones, the women are more covered and, um, there's a lot more, you know, sort of the protection and, and, um, honoring these women as more delicate. Um, so I think that's a really interesting way to look at the long history of, of birth. I don't think we scared them enough. Okay. I liked it. You did. Thank you so much for sharing. Oh my gosh. Next episode, we are going to continue with the theme of the spheres. Uh, just now, we learned about how men robbed the women's sphere. Yeah. And so we're going to learn in the next two episodes about how women sort of rebelled against uh. the limitations of their sphere. And then in the second episode after this, we'll talk about how women started to sneak into the men's sphere. Um, and take some of theirs for themselves? Yeah. But they did it by cross-dressing, so oh, it's going to get juicy. All right, thanks. Let's get into this. <laughs> all right, I'm Kelsey Eckert. I'm Brooke Sullivan. Thanks so much for listening. Thanks so much for listening to Remedial Her Story, the other 50%. Please subscribe, rate, and review wherever you listen to your podcasts to bring more voices to the conversation. We really appreciate that effort. Until next time.